0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, welcome again to Crosspoint Church this evening, and as Robert at the beginning of the service welcomed our sister churches in town, I want to add on to that and say it's great to have the brothers and sisters from Westminster and St. Andrews and Midtree and Berean and Iglesia Familia and Cristo with us. We're so grateful for you guys for our partnership in the gospel. And speaking of those churches, uh, this morning was our dear brother Pastor Bill Douglas's last Sunday as the senior pastor at St. Andrews Presbyterian Church and um, I don't think he's here tonight because he's probably taking a long and well-deserved nap after some 30 years of pastoral ministry. He planted the church there at St. Andrews and just decades and decades of faithful ministry. And so uh, if you're from St. Andrews here tonight, um, know that we're so grateful for you, for your congregation for your pastor and for the, your new pastor coming in, Wes Simmons, who I've had the opportunity to meet, and I'm really looking forward to us and the other pastors of these churches here are looking forward to, to getting to know him better, and we're grateful for your church. When we started this church 15 years ago, Bill Douglas reached out to me and befriended me, and then when we moved into this building, um, he, we, our friendship kind of uh, got closer and has just been a, a dear brother to me. I call him Uncle Bill. And so I'm grateful for Uncle Bill's ministry in this town. And so, you folks from St. Andrews in particular, we honor you. We're very grateful for uh, our dear brother and for the presence of your church in our city. So, praise God. It's great to be here with you all. This morning, Dr. Conrad Mbiway preached at Crosspoint. And so, if you're from Crosspoint, the introduction that I am about to give may be a little bit of a repeat for you. But to help our brothers and sisters that are here tonight hearing him for the first time, let me say this that it's just a pleasure to have this dear brother to preach to us this evening. He preached this morning, and tonight he will be opening God's Word again. And then tomorrow morning, we're having a preaching seminar where we're having local pastors and Bible teachers all across the theological spectrum that will be gathering here. About 80 or so folks will be gathering here to hear Dr. Mbiwe talk about Christ-centered preaching and actually model it for us and pray for fruit for that time. One of the things that we want to do as a as a church is to be a good influence on other churches in our city and we're so grateful that our brother is here to help us do that in the seminar tomorrow. But for many of you, I'm sure Dr. Mbewe is no stranger. He has served as the pastor of Kabwata Baptist Church in Lusaka, Zambia since 1987. Actually, last night at dinner we were hearing the story about how as a college student he was helping to plant the church and then several years after that they called him to be the pastor. Under his leadership, Uh, His church, KBC, has helped to plant and establish some 20 new Reformed Baptist churches in Zambia and the surrounding African countries. He also oversees a Bible college out of his church that trains pastors in particular for pastoral ministry. And then there is also a broader uh, university, African Christian University, that has been established and, and is connected to his church that he is a guest lecturer at. He is married to his wife, Felistis. They've been married for about 30 years. They have six grandchildren and several grandchildren, and certainly many of you are familiar with his ministry worldwide. Um, I didn't mention this this morning, but I think in in a few weeks leading up to this, I mentioned to the church that some of you may know him by his nickname that has kind of caught steam globally, the African Spurgeon. And uh, Saturday night at Rubin's house, we were, I was asking him about the origin of that nickname, and he's not quite sure. I think it's just America's fascination with nicknames and the internet sort of gave rise to this, um, but I think the, the moniker certainly fits. He maintains a very busy international itinerant preaching schedule uh, all across the world, and certainly here in the United States, where he's well known for his preaching at faithful conferences, such as the Gospel Coalition. The Cross Conference, Desiring God, Pastors Conference up in Minnesota, and the Shepherds Conference in Los Angeles. For those of you that didn't hear this this morning, this may lead you to ask how we got him to come to Crosspoint. And that's a good question. One of our elders, Ruben Moyana, who is also from the continent of Africa, although not Zambia, but from neighboring Zimbabwe, struck up a friendship with Pastor Conrad several years ago. And at one of our elder meetings a few years ago, Reuben asked me if, hey, what do you think about asking Conrad and Mbiwe to come preach at Crosspoint? And I sort of graciously said, well, yeah, that'd be wonderful, Reuben, do that. In the back of my mind thinking, there's no way that Conrad Way is going to come to Columbus and come to Crosspoint. Well, here he is. So praise God. I need to increase my faith, obviously. Friends, I'm from Cross Point and our sister churches. It is just a dear joy to have this brother with us to open up God's word, to have, uh, uh, and not to, not to lift up a man, but to honor the gift of God and the clear fruitfulness of his ministry, and to thank God for that. It's just an honor to have this dear brother with us to minister God's word to us. So please join me in welcoming to minister God's word to us tonight Pastor Conrad Mbewe.
1: Thank you. All right. Well, for those of you who were here this morning, it's uh, good for me to be back. And uh, this time, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, Titus and chapter 2. Titus, uh, we'll go to chapter 3 in a moment. Um, That's where we'll be having our reading. But I do want to begin with just verse 15 of chapter 2, and then we will jump into our text. Um, While you're finding your way there, one of the areas in which I often wrestle um, is with respect to the question, why has the uh, Christian faith lost a grip? on the world, and I have particularly in mind the Western world. Because the more I study the Bible, the more I am overwhelmed by the beauty, the splendor, the symmetry of biblical truth. It's so meaningful. It gives you a sense of solidity, And buoyancy, it gives you a sense of direction, just a sense of life's fulfillment. And then to uh, notice how a place that, in fact, ought to be abundantly rejoicing in this reality, we end up with an ongoing rejection of the Christian faith. One of the reasons, there must be many, but one of the reasons is, uh, to my mind, the fact that the non-Christian world is seeing very little difference between the unbelievers and those that claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And consequently, if there is no difference in the way we live, the way we organize our own families, the way in which we relate, not only in the context of the home, but also uh, socially outside, in the school, in the workplace, uh, wherever else we might be, if the non-believer sees no difference, then the question becomes, why should I bother to think in terms of the fact that you have something really distinct that I need? I remember two particular examples. One was uh, a friend of mine when I was in high school who was part of a Christian group. And one day he accosted me and began to speak to me about the need for me to be born again. And I've never forgotten how, as we were continuing in the argument between um, himself and, and me, the thing that was crossing my mind the most was, but he does what I do. I do what he does. There's no difference between us. I think he just wants me to join his club. That's the way I began to think. Well, thankfully, a year or two later, my elder sister got converted, and when I saw the transformed life, I've never forgotten thinking to myself, whatever she has, I don't have, and if that is what true Christianity is, I better Begin doing something about it. So, I want to suggest to you that really there is need for us, if we are as Christians, to once again have a real impact upon the world. It is important for us to be different. And the passage of scripture that I I'm drawing your attention to, specifically deals with that matter. So beginning with Titus 2 and verse 15, then we'll go into chapter 3 up to verse 8. The Apostle Paul says there, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now your first impression in reading a verse like that is that here is somebody who is being legalistic, authoritarian, that is just beginning to demand harshly something from the people of God. He goes on, chapter 3 and verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness, By his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I'll squeeze in verse 8. I didn't pass it on to the team at the back, but I'd like to just squeeze it in now. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The context of this letter, as some of you might be aware, is that the Apostle Paul had labored in Crete to plant this church, and some providential demand came upon his life that necessitated his departure from this island. He decided to leave Titus behind in order to continue with the church planting effort uh, so that in due season, a leadership would be put into place. uh, the, The people of God would be appropriately taught and discipled concerning this. They must be different from the masses of people among whom they live. And the reason why they must be different is because they are the people of God. They are to live for God's glory and not to live for their own selfish appetites. And so we notice, for instance, a very clear uh, difference between The way the people of God are described, rather the Cretans are described at the beginning of this letter and the way in which the people of God are being told to live. So in chapter 1, for instance, and verse 12, we have uh, the Apostle Paul quoting for us what one of the prophets in Crete was saying. Chapter 1 and verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then the Apostle Paul says, this testimony is true. (laughs) Now that's the kind of lifestyle that the people on the island had you could not trust them even with a cent, because they were chronic liars. As we often joke in Africa about people who lie even when it is not necessary. <laughs> As if it's ever necessary to lie. <laughs> but you get the point. It just becomes first nature to them Truth doesn't matter at all. But then he also speaks about the consequence of that, living lives that are evil. And he uses the phrase evil beasts. In other words, animals are not known to be rational. They, have, they are creatures of instinct. And once they are instincts are after something, there's hardly any reasoning process that you can use to dissuade them. Well, he's saying here, the Cretans are like that. They are passionate about wickedness, passionate about evil, and you cannot reason them out of it. The third description here is that they are lazy gluttons. In other words, If they can be paid a salary without working, they will gladly do it. That's their way of life. But look at the way the Apostle Paul refers to Christians. He says there, first of all, that Titus must rebuke them. Verse 13, this testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith. In other words, that they might be different, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. And then he says, "If I could quick, quickly jump into uh, chapter two and just verse one, but as for you, teach what accords to sound." doctrine, and you want the men to live like this, the older women to live like this, and that's what you're finding in the rest of this portion of Scripture. The point there is clearly Paul wants these older men and these older women, and consequently the younger women and and the younger men, to begin to live lives that are different. Now, my interest is primarily with chapter 3. And the way in which the Apostle Paul opens that section up, primarily to argue for why Christians ought to be different. And it's this, that in becoming Christians, there has been a seismic, earth-shattering change or transformation that has taken place in them. Now, surely, if that has happened, to borrow the phrase in Ephesians, if they've gone from death to life, they ought to be different from those who are still dead. And that's the point that the Apostle Paul is making here. And so at the beginning of this chapter, as we have already seen, he he spells out the way in which he wants those who are Christians to live. And the very first phrase he uses there, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now, why is he beginning there? Well, we just have to go back to chapter one, And look at verse 10. He says there, For there are many who are insubordinate. It's it's their very nature, these people, to be rebellious. And so he is saying the Christians must be different. In other words, if you employ a Christian, and you employ a non-Christian, you will see a drastic difference between the two. Because a Christian is going to be one who is submissive, is going to be one who is obedient, is going to be one who is ready for every good work. And so on he goes. He's talking about a life that is different. Now, even before we go into the why, I want to ask a simple question to you as you are seated in here. Is your life different from your non-Christian relatives and friends, from your non-Christian siblings and neighbors? Is your life different? Because that's not an optional extra to the Christian faith. That's what should cause the world around you to sit up and say, why are you like this? Well, to begin with, The Apostle Paul, in verse 3, tells us the reason why the non-Christian cannot live the life that is now possible for a Christian. And this is the reason he gives, that they are hopelessly enslaved, hopelessly enslaved. He puts it this way in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. In other words, we were once there, those of us who are now Christians. Disobedient, led astray, and here's the phrase. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. That's the description of the non-Christian. Now, if in our minds the non-Christian is simply someone who um, is naturally good, but every so often yields to some innate weaknesses, then clearly we have not understood the biblical description of the person that has not been saved by God through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here is using words that clearly show the the hopelessness of the situation. I mean, first of all, he speaks in terms of being foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Clearly, such individuals are not in control of any righteous life. They lack wisdom. It leads them into lives of disobedience. And then as he puts it there, they are deceived. They are led astray. They will listen to any old lie and live by it. Even if you tell them that it was just an explosion that happened in history, and that's why you are what you are now. Uh, The complexity that makes up your, your person is a product of a bang and then millions and millions and millions and millions of years. You've slowly lost your tail, and you've begun to stand upright. (laughs) All because of this enslavement that he goes on to speak about. That's the reason why they are willing to believe the lie. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. They are bound by the evil one. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaks of them in terms of being enslaved to the world, enslaved to the evil one, and then enslaved to their own fallen passions. He summarizes all that in one phrase. They are dead spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And it is because of that that we now see the impossibility of the non-Christian world to live in love, in concern for others, rather than for myself. Rather, what you have, as we see it in this text, are individuals that are passing their days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's the inevitable consequence. Invariably fighting. Fighting invariably stealing from one another, invariably gossiping and slandering others, murdering their reputation, so to speak. It's because of this reality. You can multiply your police, you can multiply your armies. You can multiply your auditors. You can multiply whatever other methods you have of reigning in human sinfulness. You cannot get that sinfulness out of the heart. It's impossible. Now that's... The way we were before the Lord saved us. In other words, if we are not different from the rest of the world, and we are like this, it makes sense. And therefore, all we have is a philosophy of life. That's all. Like Marxism or communism or whatever other ism it might be. That's all we have. But friends, that's not the case with us. And therefore the Apostle Paul goes on to speak about our gracious salvation. The salvation that our Lord Jesus Christ has brought. I love this. I love it because of the way the Apostle Paul begins. He says there, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. First of all, simply the word but. Just that word. Because it's immediately turning darkness to light. Hopelessness to a situation of full hope when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Notice the emphasis on the goodness of God intervening into this situation. He has spoken there about goodness, loving kindness of God. If you go on in verse um, uh, 5, he speaks about it having happened according to his own mercy. Go on to verse 7. He speaks there about being justified by his grace. In other words, this is not something we earn. It's not because we have decided to change The way we behave, and then God says, Well, I I like your attempt, let me help you to finish off the process. No, there would be absolutely zero believer on the planet if God was not good. We, by our sin, have forfeited, completely forfeited any goodwill from God. But he's a good God, a kind God, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. And in the midst of all those attributes, in the Godhead, a grand design of salvation is put together in which God the Son becomes one who will take our place as our substitute to suffer all the consequences of our sin. And then God the Holy Spirit would come into the world in order to subdue our sinful hearts, impart life into us, and come to take residence within our souls. And in case you think that's all from me, let's get back into the text. (laughs) The Apostle Paul there says, he saved us, Not because, verse 5, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's what I've already dealt with. It's not your good works. It's not your, your, your praying, You're going to church, your, your baptism, your, your eating the Lord's Supper, or whatever else you might be attempting to do. Uh, visiting the sick and, and giving money to the poor and so on. It's none of that. It is according to his own mercy. That's all. God has visited us in our rebellion to come and rescue us from that same enslavement that we were speaking about earlier on, of his own accord. Now, before we even open that up for a moment, all I want to say is this. That therefore, as Christians, one reason why we will be different from everyone else is that we, we, we need to live a life out of gratitude. Gratitude. Here's the phrase, God has been good to us. He has been by the fact that he has reached out to us while we were in our mad pursuit towards hell, out of his own mercy. But how did he do it? Well, our text says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what happened on your day of salvation was not so much that some persuasive preacher managed somehow to get past your defense mechanisms and convince you to jump out of that train that was heading down into the river, just in time. So it was, in the end, your cleverness that enabled you to quickly jump out. Rather, it is that God, the Holy Spirit, gave you new birth. That's what that word regeneration means. That he infused new life into you. You were dead. He gave you life. You were blind. He enabled you to see. Absolutely deaf. He opened your ears. And consequently... Now that you are alive and we're seeing and we're hearing, you realize the danger in which you were. Consequently, you cried to the Lord Jesus Christ, Savior, Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. It was the work of regeneration that brought about that call that you gave out. But here's a second. The work of the Holy Spirit did not just infuse life into you. The Holy Spirit renewed your will. There it is. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now that's equally important. Because in saving you, the Lord did not just give you new life and enable you to cry to the Lord Jesus Christ. You were heading in the direction of sin, loving sin, enjoying sin, making it your source of absolute pleasure. And through his work of renewal, he turned you round. So that now you love truth, you love holiness, you love that which glorifies God. He renewed your will from being one that loves sin to one that loves holiness. The Holy Spirit does that. And out of this, we are told, he was poured out on us through the saving work of Jesus Christ. End of verse 6. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Remember what I said. Because of his love, God the Father and God the Son entered into that agreement by which the Son became a servant, and was sent into this world, born of a virgin, suffered from birth, hunted like a wild animal, finally on his knees in Gethsemane, knowing what lay ahead of him, was going to be the drinking in of the full cup of God's wrath on behalf of his people. Without that, there was going to be no salvation. Without that, there was going to be no sending of the Holy Spirit to come and do this work. And therefore, Jesus, a servant of God on our behalf, took that step and went to Calvary, willingly hung there. Until he could say, It is finished. I've paid the price. God the Father, on his side of the covenant, must now give the Spirit to come and do this work of regeneration and renewal. Now, friends, I said, We must be different because we have to be with gratitude to such a God. But secondly, we must be different because we are different. We've been renewed. We've been liberated. And therefore, we ought to live like that. Many years ago in Zambia, we, we were in a state of uh, war with um, the country right at the bottom of the continent, South Africa. And so, as soon as we finished high school, uh, they, they used to train us in military tactics. And going through uh, military training, you were taught literally to respond without thinking. It, it, it was reflex action. Uh, and that's how we learned how to march. Uh, you, you, you were hardly processing things. You, the 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 command of whoever was issuing out commands, you simply followed. If you said right turn, left turn, roundabout turn, you just did it without thinking. And one of the commands they used to give us when they was this people that were sergeants and staff sergeants when they would walk in where we were, would be, they would simply say, squad, sit up. And you know, without thinking, you all went like this. <laughs> well, we, we, we graduated from training, and a number of us went to, uh, on to university studies. We had naughty friends who would come from behind us and just say, squad, sit up. And without thinking, you were now free from military training. You were now a university student. But suddenly, just hearing that, you went, ah! (laughs) And then you got upset and you chased your friend out. It took quite some time for us, for that reality, to be captured in our beings. Of course, with time, someone would come in with that kind of uh, um, naughty trick and would just turn around and say, ah, come on, get out here. We were no longer recruits in the Namibara. We were free students in university. In the same way, the reason why we should be different is because we are different. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are no longer slaves of this world. We are no longer slaves of the evil one. We are no longer dead in sin. We are now children of the living God, regenerated, renewed, and as we've seen here, I will touch on it a little more, justified, declared righteous through the finished work of Christ. Surely all that should cause you To say, I'm different. Why should I behave like those who are still dead? Why? Well, I promised you that we needed to hurry on to this justification. So the third is the result of all this. The result of all this. And it's our eternal relationship our eternal relationship. The Apostle Paul speaks about justification as the basis for this new relationship. Notice this at the beginning of verse 7. He says there, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you've not understood justification, I can well understand why you hover so closely to the world, the fallen world, from which you have been procured. Because for many people, to be justified simply means to be forgiven. And that's wrong. In fact, In the proper understanding of the word itself, forgiveness is not an intricate part of it. If two people are quarreling, and you step in and you listen to them, and one of them is pointing a finger very close to his friend's nose, and is saying, the the problem with you is you keep justifying yourself. Is he saying the problem with you is you keep forgiving yourself? He's saying the problem with you is that you keep claiming that what you did was right. That's your problem. You cannot accept that what you did was wrong. Well, you see, to justify is to declare someone righteous. That's what it is. Now, granted, spiritual justification includes forgiveness, but it's not the primary thought. The primary thought is this, that God has declared me righteous. Not simply as one that has never sinned, but that I'm one who has lived an actual righteous life, a life that is worthy of heaven. Now, we all know that I haven't, but that's the point. Jesus is the one who has procured it for me by his absolutely blameless life. And that is, has now been put to my record. The righteousness of God's own Son is in my account. Now, if that's the case, here is a mind-blowing reality, and it's this. I'll get to heaven. I'll enter heaven. Because when God opens my records, he will see, not my righteousness, because I have none. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Which is infinitely more glorious than that of any angel. And on that basis, he will welcome me into his heaven. Do you know what that does to me? It gives me a sure hope, a solid hope. And that's what it says here, that so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Remember the phrase in the Bible about none uh, but company, individuals who are saying, let's eat and drink, For tomorrow we die. That's the non-Christian world. This is all we have, this world. Let's make the most of it. And hence it's a life of of selfishness, a life of grab this and and grab the other because the moment I die, that's it. Well, not so with a child of God. The moment I die, I'm translated into glory. Surely, I must be different. I must be. With those who are without God and without hope in this world, people should see the difference between the two of us. And that's the point that Apostle Paul is bringing out here. You have entered into Not just a relationship with God, but an eternal one which will never come to an end. As the hymn writer says, loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport, oh, divine. In a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. That's the relationship. You now belong to God, not only for time, not only at the portals of death, but indeed for all eternity. There is no need for you to have any fear whatsoever concerning the future, not even judgment day. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are indeed my most glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, I shall lift up my head. There's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. And when I'm out there, the world should see that this chap has hope. Hope that the rest of us don't have. Look at his life. Oh, brethren, I must hurry on to close. It's on this basis that the Apostle Paul says in that last verse there. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on it, on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Once you grasp these realities, how do you start following after the people of the world, how trying to be like them? How when God has done such great things for you? One final verse that I want us to, to notice is First uh, Thessalonians chapter one, and this uh, has to do with uh, salvation that visited. Um, the people of Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, in terms of the change that took place, the change. First Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 9 and verse 10. I want you to notice where they were coming from, and then the hope they now had. Verse 9 and 10. For they... Meaning, the people of the world where Paul was going to preach after he left Thessalonica. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, and this is the way they began to live, to serve the living and true God that became your lifestyle. You were now servants of God, day by day. They uh, they saw it with their own eyes, that this is the way you were now living. But that's not all. Listen to this. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In other words, they saw that you had hope. You were waiting for a Savior from heaven. You were different. So let me ask as I close. A question I asked at the beginning. Are you different? Are you? Has something happened to you that you can only explain in these words? The powers of the coming age have invaded my soul and turned me around from the inside out. I am not what I used to be. now with all the love in my heart let me say this if you cannot do so you're most likely not a christian yet if you are still enslaved to the world to the evil one and to the flesh if you're still living a little life in selfishness. You're still on your way to hell. Because that's not Christianity. It's not the Christianity of the Bible. And the sooner you throw it away, the better it will be for you. Cry to Christ that he may truly save you. Plead with him. That this salvation that we've just described may be yours in reality. That you too should be able to testify concerning a real spiritual transformation that you are not trying to be different from the outside in. You are different from the inside out. Don't rest until... Jesus saves you in this biblical way. Then I want to assure you, you will be different. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, like a surgeon, your Holy Spirit often works in a way in which we feel as though he is unkind to us emotionally, as he visits us with convicting power. Yet we thank you that it is in that apparent cruelty that he is kind. Because in showing us what we really are in the eyes of God, he enables us to flee to Christ that we might be saved. Lord, in a day and age where the difference between the church and the world is blurred, we know that with you it is not blurred. You know your children because they are different. Oh, how we pray that each one of us, in the light of these realities we have seen in your word, may be just that, different from the world. Oh, Lord, if there are any among us that have caught themselves on the wrong foot, thank you that it is an act of grace on your part. Turn them round, O oh Lord. Turn them round, we pray. That today they might experience that life changing difference. That will give them a hope for all eternity. Lord, we plead for this